Thank you. I'd like to have your attention, please. I think we should go ahead and start. You're welcome to continue. I've, I've learned now that the big pot over there is caffeinated, and the smaller one is decaf. So please feel free uh, to get either one if you'd like. And there's some more wine outside. Uh, I'm Rick Herman. I'm the director here at the Mershon Center. And I'm very happy that all of you came out this evening to hear Yitzhak Gilnor. And I'm very grateful to him because I know he had to get up before the crack of dawn at an unbelievably early hour in California to climb on a plane to come here uh, in time so that he could be here this evening with us at Mershon and tomorrow in uh, public policy and management over in the Fisher complex. I want to thank Bert Rockman, the director of public policy and management, for making this possible. It's his tour of duty, so to speak, in Israel a year ago, I guess, that connected him to Yitzhak and created the, the personal network that allowed us to uh, persuade uh, Professor Galnor to visit us here in Columbus, uh, the center of the world, obviously, uh, between Israel, at least we're at Midway or somewhere between Israel and, uh, and Berkeley. Many of us know his work in political science over the years. He's the Herbert Samuel Professor of Political Science at Hebrew University. Uh, he's been on the executive committee of the International Political Science Association. He's written a book called The Partition of Palestine, Decision, Crossroads in the Zionist Movement, and he's edited uh, books on the advances in political science that Cambridge has published. He's been a very active part of the International Political Science Association and I think is well known to many of us who both study the Middle East or public policy and administration. He's been a visiting professor many places. I'm not going to read the whole list. And has directed institutes at, at, Tel Aviv, at Hebrew University in Israel and has served on Israel's Science Foundation Executive Committee in the, for the last three or four years and on the governing board at Hebrew University for the last two years. Uh, he received his Ph.D. some time ago uh, at the University of Syracuse. So without further ado, tonight he's going to talk about Israel and the Palestinians, prospects for peace and security. Uh, let's hope it's hopeful. We will. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Thank you for your kind words, <clears throat> and uh, thank you for inviting me to come over. Can you hear me? And uh, also, I want to like—I would like to thank Bert Rockman for, as you heard, he made it possible and he invited me. So, if you have any complaints, you know who is responsible. For that. <laughs> the subject: Israeli and Palestinian prospect for peace and security. And uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy subject. And I'm reminded of uh, the old joke that uh, has been circulating in Israel uh, for a long time, too long, I guess, about two men sitting on a bench in a park in Tel Aviv on the beach, enjoying the sun. And after a while, one of them heaves a tremendous sigh in Hebrew, it's called oi. And the other one jumps to his feet and says, if you continue to talk about the Middle East, 
I'm leaving. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I'm not going to talk, by the way, on the middle, about the Middle East, and uh, I'm not going to talk about Iraq. Uh, I watched the debate, I must say, uh, was very little about Israel, uh, and uh, it's not much difference between the two of them. So, for those of you who uh, don't like both of them, I can say that, uh, well, you get only one, right? <laughs> In Israel, you get more than one. <laughs> now, <clears throat> what I think I should do, uh, I, since <clears throat> you know the uh, subject, uh, I'm not going to go through the history of the conflict, but I'll mention some of the uh, major events in order to make a point. And then I'll uh, talk mainly about the current situation, and uh, you'll discover that I am more optimistic than you assume, but maybe less than necessary. <laughs> if we look at the history <coughs> of the conflict, and uh, unfortunately it's not, a, it's not a short history, I think that, unfortunately, but really unfortunately, it's a history of wars but it's also a history of missed opportunities. And I would like to mention the major events, mainly the wars, and point out what I consider to be the missed opportunities. 1947, the United Nations resolution about partition to establish, 1947, two states, two states. One Jewish state and the other is called the Arabic state. Later. Palestinian state. This resolution was rejected by both the uh, Arab countries and uh, the Palestinian leadership. Think about it, what would have happened if they agreed, or at least negotiated it. The partition plan of 47 allotted almost 42, 43% of the entire area between the Jordan River and the coast uh, to the Palestinian state. Much more, of course, than is discussed now. I mean, many Palestinians would love to have the partition plan rejected. And then there was a war, and uh, <clears throat> the war also ended up in an armistice agreement. Another missed opportunity. Didn't end up in peace. <coughs> Maybe if we look back at that time, if those boundaries would have been accepted by all sides, and and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip would not be divided between Jordan and Egypt, and the Palestinian state would have been would have been established in 1948 or 49. Uh, that was another misopportunity. Jumping to 1967. After the war ended, the Arab League met in Khartoum, the uh, capital of Sudan, and issued the so-called Three-No Declaration. No recognition of Israel, no negotiation with Israel, and no peace with Israel. Palestinians were there, but not really represented. I mean, the PLO at that time was a puppet organization. They, didn't, they were not represented. The Arab states didn't think they should be properly represented. That's their misopportunity. And Israel, instead of understanding for the first time in 1967 that there is something to negotiate, and instead of saying, which I think it should have said, 
that you're going to stay, Israel is going to stay in the occupied territories as long as it takes. But once there is a partner for peace, we are willing to give it back, all of it. Instead, the government made a secret decision, known to the United States, but not to the people of Israel, expressing willingness to return the Sinai and maybe the Golan Heights of Syria, but nothing about the so-called eastern border, namely the West Bank. So there you are. And instead, the Israeli government, since 1969, went on and created these settlements. If it's going to be one day peace, I think that, and we're going to have songs about the old days, uh, together with the Palestinians, it's, un it's difficult to explain why we have those settlements in the West Bank. In the beginning there was security and all kinds of excuses. There's no reason whatsoever to have the settlements in Gaza Strip on the West Bank. And we are talking about the Labour government in 1967. We are not talking about the Likud government later on when Begin came to power in 1977. The first establishment, the first settlements were established by a Labour government. Peace with Egypt, 1978-1982. Sadat tried to do what he thought is right for the Palestinians. He didn't negotiate only the Egyptian part of it. He did try to negotiate the Palestinian part of it. He did. And he was talking about autonomy and so on and so on. Who was not willing to take part in this negotiation? The Palestinian leadership. And now we are talking about the authentic leadership of the Palestinians. This is already the PLO headed by Arafat. And this is when Abba Ibn said, and I think he was absolutely right, his famous saying that the Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Not mine, Abba Ibn, late Abba Ibn. Uh, and Sadat uh, was uh, murdered in uh, 1983. Not the last leader to be murdered for peace. Not the first, I'm sorry. Abdallah of Jordan was the first and not the last one. And I'm thinking about Rabin. <clears throat> 1989, 1989-91, the first uprising, so-called Intifada, and the Gulf War, and uh, resulted in the Madrid conference, which could have been the beginning, particularly since at that time we had a Likud government, and our prime minister at that time, um, uh, <clears throat> Isaac Shamir was dragged, kicking uh, to the Madrid, uh, promising to everybody that he's not going to do anything, which he managed to, to do, you know, more precisely than not to do, but he was ousted a year later. In 1993, another missed opportunity, by the way, because it was the first time there was a meeting with the Palestinians, uh, of course, indirect, I mean, they were not represented, they were part of the Jordanian, all, you know, this uh, diplomatic tricks that, uh, you know, sane people look at them and say, what well, they think we don't understand, I mean, they're trying to cheat us, I mean, the people, but there was a meeting with the Palestinians and all the other, the Syrians and the Egyptians and so on. That's, 19, that's Madrid. 1992, the change of government in Israel and Rabin became uh, prime minister and then, I think, a miracle happened we had the Oslo Agreement. And I call it a miracle because at that time it was forbidden for Israelis to meet with the PLO. 
it was uh, uh, nobody recognized the whole idea of a Palestinian state or the idea of evacuating settlement uh, was nothing that was supported by anyone. It was a miracle because in Oslo, and I'm saying this because Oslo is attacked, and in Israel you even say, you know, the uh, no, the uh, uh, the uh, criminals who brought us Oslo should be brought to, to court and so on. I mean, the right-wing extreme in Israel says that about Oslo. Oslo was a big success. For the first time, mutual recognition, Israel recognized the PLO and named directly the right of the, P of the Palestinian people to have the state of their own. And, as important, the Palestinians, for the first time, recognized what even the Egyptians didn't do in the peace treaty, which I didn't mention in 1979-81, recognition of the right of the state, the state of Israel to exist. You may say words, but not. It's in, in, in the Middle East, words are very important. Uh, you know, I always, in my meetings with Palestinians, I always say, you know, we are textologists. Textology, in my text, means that paying attention to the text more than necessary. You know, we, we, if text could speak, we have had by now ten uh, different peace treaties. And Oslo has been described, by, mainly in Israel, but other, other places, as uh, a Swiss cheese full of holes. Of course, because the idea was that you move as you go. The whole idea that uh, some confidence-building measures would have to be taken was the right idea. It was full of holes, but there was an agreement between the two leaders that this is the way to do. You read those agreements, and if you know how to read those agreements, you usually read between the lines. And between the lines was written that for the first time it's going to be a reconciliation. And those of you who happened to be in Israel at that time and so on, there was a real sense that something is happening. I mean, the Palestinians moved in East Jerusalem with the PLO flag, which Three weeks before was the flag of the enemy and so on. There was a sense that something is going to happen. And it could have happened. But I'll come to it at the end of my talk. Oslo, <coughs> the Oslo Agreement had in mind a prolonged process. And this is something that maybe we want to question. And I'll try to leave as much time for questioning as possible. Maybe that was part of it. the whole thing, that in 1999, if I remember correctly, there would be the final settlement and so on. And in the meantime, the idea was that there would be some kind of confidence building on both sides. Well, there wasn't. Uh, confidence was not the right thing. Both sides, both sides violated the agreement, the letter of the agreement, but more important, the spirit of the agreement. And... <coughs> Uh, in 1995, uh, Rabin was murdered, and uh, the new government, even though it didn't say openly they were against Oslo, uh, since then uh, um, the Oslo agreement more or less died as, as a viable agreement. So, all this I said for three reasons. One, there were many, many opportunities along the way. Two, in those cases in which something good happened, it happened through direct negotiations with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, and with the Palestinians, even though it didn't take off. Thirdly, if you look carefully, the role of the United States, some of you may be interested in that too, in all those cases, the United States came after the process has started. The United States has not initiated any 
meaningful peace process in the Middle East. All right. Which brings us now to the last stage, uh, and it's the last 10 years, and this is what I want to talk about most of the time. And as I said, I'll try to be as brief as possible. The meeting in Camp David in the year 2000, this is before the last intifada started, just to remind you, there were two partners, three partners, sorry. And to cut a very long story short, and to express my opinion about the debate that's going on in many books between all the people who were there and so on, if you read the book, this is a real Rashomon story. I mean, I'm talking to those who, who are studying it, you know, must have been about five different uh, Camp Davids. There's only one, as far as I know, right? Uh, but as if people weren't there. And this is part of the story, because it was the most unprepared, uh, misconceived, and in many ways irresponsible uh, meeting that I've ever seen. And I'm talking about responsibility of all three sides, Palestinians, Israelis, and the Clinton administration. And if you force me, and I feel that you are pressuring me, I would even divide it equally between them, which is not very popular in Israel, because in Israel nowadays, Arafat and the Palestinians are to be blamed. No. All three of them are to be blamed, because <clears throat> on the Palestinian side, they didn't make the strategic decision that this is time to, do, to move, and Arafat didn't show the kind of leadership that is required, even though he didn't get what he wanted. And he had some reasons to, to be suspicious of both Barack, Prime Minister at the time, and Clinton, the outgoing president. And he let the extremists have their way. And he thought that if he just releases a little bit of violence after the meeting collapse, then he would be able to put some more pressure, and of course he couldn't. And during the time between Oslo and uh, King David, there was nothing to show that they are going to establish uh, uh, viable institutions to use a neutral word, or if you don't understand it, uncorrupt institutions, if I want to be more blunt, or even seriously take the idea that it could be a democracy. In, in, in the first era of democracy, the uh, in the Middle East, but I promise not to talk about Iraq, so if, you, if I say the first one, you can draw the conclusions. <laughs> On the Israeli side, Barack, probably the most amateurish prime minister we ever had. And I must say, uh, being amateur, amateur, I mean, you have presidents here, which I have no experience, I'm not saying that's in itself, but the combination of being arrogant and amateur at the same time is a deadly one. And he went to this conference against the advice of the people who knew Paris and people who very much said, you have to prepare it, you don't go there, it's not a military operation, you don't take the hill, it has to be prepared. I mean, we are not ready, they are not ready, I mean, and besides, I mean, the most important things have to be worked out in advance. I'm not going to give you a lecture on, 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 uh, on uh, uh, international diplomacy. But he went ahead anyhow, assuming that he could do it and so on, and he wanted to have a comprehensive final settlement done in one week with, and I come to the third party, an outgoing president, 
that wanted to have his last mark on history or, or, or Nobel Prize, I don't know, and so on, and in desperation didn't play a very even-handed uh, role, I must say. I think that if you look at it, Arafat had some reasons to, to, to be suspicious of the collusion, as they put it, the Palestinians, between Israelis and Clinton. Clinton went more or less with Barack. So Camp David collapsed not because there was something basically wrong. It's another missed opportunity, a terrible missed opportunity in many respects. Because, as I said, instead of those three leaders deciding at the end of it, okay, we are not ready, let's take some more time, you know, and so on, and each of them blamed the other. There was another attempt at Taba, which was, uh, uh, of course, silly in retrospect. By that time, Barack lost his majority. In the, I mean, he lost his majority before. He lost his ability to maneuver, and at that time, he was already facing election. And uh, no leader would go and make an agreement. I'm talking now about the Palestinian with the leader is going to face an election in a few months, assuming that the elections are going to save his job as a, as, as a prime minister. I mean, that, that was, there was nothing there. So the collapse was uh, uh, inevitable, and, uh, and yet, look at the text and you see remarkable agreements. This is, nobody denies all the versions. I mean, there have been remarkable agreements. I mean, understanding is no, they didn't write anything and so on, but the understanding is quite amazing. And I'll come to it in a moment. So what we have had since then, four horrible years of non-stop violence, which makes many people desperate, including myself, I must say, from time to time. And... Uh, you look at the situation, it's a deadlock, it's a dead end, it's a deadlock, it's a dead end, and you had dead people, many, many, many people dead. And it's easy to despair. But I consider myself, how shall I say, I'm a peacemonger. Can you say it in English? You can. Okay. I, I think that if you look at it, you'll find reasons to be at the same time, optimistic that eventually, eventually something must happen. And after 25 years, I should tell, I mean, I, you should know who is standing here before you. Uh, I've been involved with Peace Now. I was one of the founders of Peace Now back in the uh, late uh, uh, 70s. And I, uh, uh, I've tried to do as much as I can. And I'm going to tell you in a moment about the last effort I'm involved with. I think that even after 25 years, there is enough to go around and not to be totally pessimistic. Can be pessimistic from time to time. And I already hinted, if I forget later on, this unilateral business. Again, I'm not talking about Iraq. It is a key to the, to, the, to the solution. So let me quickly tell you about the last thing that I've been involved in and then sum it up and then open it for question. <clears throat> I don't know if many of you heard of the Ayalon uh, Nuseibe initiative. Any of you heard? I mean, people are doing the Middle East and so on. Uh, well, sometimes if you, you can find it, uh, it's in English, I think, the, the, web, the website is the People's Voice. That's, that's the... Uh, uh, and it is based on the assumption that I mentioned, maybe not clear enough, that there is a leadership deficiency on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians alike. 
we don't have the leadership we deserve. And I'm not talking now about this government, the Sharon government, or Arafat personally. I think for the last number of years, and I want to include uh, uh, the previous administration in Israel, uh, we have had uh, uh, less than, than uh, we deserve. It's a leadership failure above all things, above uh, all the things. So I think that people who, uh, like myself, uh, believe that there is still a chance, we have to start working to impose on our respective governments to move ahead. So this initiative, uh, which was uh, initiated by Ami Ayalon, the former head of the Israeli Secret Service, general in the army, and uh, <coughs> Professor Nusebe, the president of Al-Quds University in Jerusalem, a noted uh, philosopher, they met, and uh, there was a group of people on both sides, Palestinian and Israeli, and as usually, we play our textologist role, and we haggled and there for almost six months, and we came with a six-point uh, declaration, statement of principles, which I'm going to uh, uh, read it to you, to, to be precise, based on the assumption that, first of all, we can talk to each other, and we have, more important, to convince the other side that there is a partner for peace. That's the most important thing. Talk to Israelis, they say, well, you know, Barak gave them everything, they rejected it. Nobody to talk to. Barak is going around saying it did today. It's causing more damage now, and because a great deal of damage with Prime Minister, it's causing more, even more now as going around saying that. And the same with the Palestinians. The Israelis, you know, they don't want to talk to us and so on. So the first thing is to convince that there is a partner, and the idea is to have this declaration, this statement of principle, signed by people. This is not imposed from above. This is not lesson from Oslo, peace that is made by leaders or by the heads of the intelligence units. Uh, you know, those of you who know Arabic, we sometimes call it an agreement between the Muhabarat, the intelligence of both sides. Uh, uh, you know, this is not the way to make peace. Peace has to be not just between government, has to be between peoples. So the idea is to come... Uh, forward and, and to show that there are people willing to do it. And it is based on a very curious situation that most people in this country, when I talk to them, don't realize. There is a majority for peace and for settlement on both sides. It's a bit confusing. Opinion polls in Israel, when you ask a question, let's say, we, shall, we take, shall we take severe measures against the Palestinians? Yes, 60-70%. Uh, should we have the uh, direct assassination that uh, the government is? Yes, 60-70%. Do you support a two-state solution? Yes, 60-70%. Are you for a settlement, a settlement agreement with the Palestinians? Again, we have close to 70%. So, one explanation is that, uh, you know, they have 70% for Every, almost everything in Israel, so, so maybe, maybe we are more than 100%, I don't know, maybe that's one way of saying it. But I think the explanation is, on one hand, frustration, confusion, but the fact that people are saying they are willing to have the solution is more important to me. Now, I talked to my colleague at uh, Birzeit University, some of you may have heard of them, a very uh, noted Palestinian <coughs> scholar, Dr. Shkaki, he published the most reliable, those of you doing work, most reliable uh, opinion polls on the Palestinians. And then he said to me, you know, it's very funny. 
I asked the Palestinians, are we, should we continue the Intifada? 60-70%. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Uh, should, should we support these suicide bombers? 70% among the Palestinians say yes. Should we have a two-state solution and so on? Again, we have the same percentage. So also, they are more than 100%, and it's an indication of what I'm trying to, to convey to you, that there is a majority, and it's one of those cases in which the people are willing and the leadership is lacking. So what do you do? Well, I thought, and some other people, and your friend Arian Nadler and some other and Palestinians, we met, and we worked out the six-point uh, uh, declaration, statement of principle, on the assumption it's not enough just to get together and say we are for peace and for brotherhood and, you know, shouldn't kill each other and so on. No. We should outline the principles of the agreement because if we don't, then we don't do our job properly. So what I'm going to read to you is the six points. Well, and those of you know this, this is not so uh, uh, simple because, as you will find out, there are many concessions. So let me read it to you quickly. Number one, two states for two peoples. I mean, that's, that's very clear. Namely, no domination, the end of occupation. Both sides will declare that Palestine is the only state of the Palestinians and Israel is the only state of the Jewish people. Two states. Boundaries, borders. Permanent borders between the two states will be agreed upon on the basis of the June 4, 1967 line, the so-called Green Line, the pre-1967 war, with the ability of modification based on agreements and exchange of territory. I mean, there would be need for adjustment. Third, Jerusalem. Jerusalem will remain an open city, the capital of two states. Palestinians would have jurisdiction over the Arab neighborhood, the uh, Israelis over the Jewish neighborhood, and the holy places would be without any sovereignty. The political scientists among you, and in my department as well, say, you know, you're going back to Danzig, what, what is it? A, a territory without uh, uh, sovereignty? And we answer to that, yes, there is sovereignty. sovereignty. In the case of the holy place of Jerusalem, belongs equally to God and Allah. He, he or she should have the sovereignty of the holy places and it would be a joint administration and that's the only solution we think is possible in Jerusalem. Right of return. Very difficult point. And it says that recognizing the suffering and the plight of the Palestinian, the international community, Israel and the Palestinian state will initiate and contribute international fund to compensate the refugees. Now listen carefully. Palestinian refugees will return only to the state of Palestine. Namely, no right of return. Jewish people can settle only in the state of Israel. No settlements. Unless it would be agreed in some areas, Jerusalem and so on. And the compensation and so on. Fifth point, Palestinian state will be demilitarized finally end of conflict, very important upon the full implementation of this principle, all claims on both sides of Israeli-Palestinian conflict will end the two major concessions let me point out and this was of course the main problem we Israelis believe unless the Palestinians understand that Palestinians cannot return to the state of Israel no, no Israelis would accept this settlement 
I mean, this is the kind of thing that the Palestinians have to understand. This is the major concession. Of course, they can return to the Palestinian state, but not to the state of Israel. And the major concession, no settlements left, no claim over the Holy Land or the land of our fathers and our mothers. That's the end of the result of 1967, unless there would be some modification. This is the major thing. And if each side is not willing to make this major concession, then there's, there's no, no big chance for peace. In a year and uh, a half since then, we have now on the Israeli side, I checked the internet last night before I came, 210,000 signatures. On the Palestinian side, which is more interesting, we have little less than 150,000. The goal was to get half a million signatures within three years. So we are ahead of schedule. And once we have half a million signatures, and I must say I'm quite happy to see that, for those who say there are no partners on the other side, or for those who say the Palestinians are not willing to speak up, 150,000 Palestinians signed these six points, including no right of return. And Sari Nuseva, courageous person, goes to refugee camps, and he talks to them, and they tell him, we are not, we disagree with you about this right of return, but we respect the fact you're talking truth to us, unlike our Palestinian government. And he goes to the prisoner in Israel, and he talks to them, and they support it. And we go from place to place, and we talk to Israelis, suspicious as they are, and they realize that if there's going to be a solution, this is more or less what the solution is going to look like. There's no other way. There's nothing else. That's it. Now, there is an, uh, another effort which is very similar, called the Geneva Accords. You may heard this is the Yossi Bailin Initiative and Abderabo. Uh, very similar. It's, I see it complementary. It, it's an agreement working great detail by leaders. I mean, it's, the difference is the approach. We start from the bottom. They, they start with the agreement. Both cases trying to pressure the government to do something, and the pressure, in the case at least of the Israeli government, has worked because the Sharon disengagement plan is, in part, a response to those two initiatives. He said it so. I don't have to guess. He said there are all kinds of initiatives being floated, he said, including here in in the Holy Land, and we have to do something. Otherwise, a settlement is going to impose. And he came with a disengagement uh, plan. So let me say two things about the disengagement plan and, and, uh, and, and finish with that. The disengagement plan, which basically calls for the evacuation of settlements in the Gaza Strip and the end of the occupation and some settlements in the north, is in fact a result of the pressure, as I said, but it has a good side and a bad side. The bad side is that I suspect that Sharon's plan is to evacuate the settlements in Gaza and in the north of the West Bank and in return to get a free hand in the West Bank. I think that's basically, I think it's a fair summary of what he has in mind. Uh, so in this respect, it's not good enough. On the other hand, people like myself, we think it would be very good to have a precedent in which Mr. Sharon, who is greatly responsible for the settlements and is the head of the most right-wing government we had in the last 10 years, if he would set the precedent of evacuating settlements, I think we should support it. That's more or less, I would say, the, the general idea among many Israelis regarding this additional engagement. 
not good enough. I must say, not um, far from being uh, good enough. So, <clears throat> I think that given the situation now, and given the fact that we have people on both sides willing to do it, and uh, we, there is a need, as, as I implied, for international involvement, much more vigorous, much more than both candidates are suggesting, and I think the United States, for once, should take perhaps also the initiative, not just have some road plan or what is it, road map, which is leading nowhere anyhow. Uh, I think that on the basis of those principles and the one outlined in the Geneva Accord, which are very similar, as I said, uh, this is the only basis for solution. So, if I may end up, uh, let's get away from the Middle East with Chinese wisdom. Uh, you know, the Chinese say that the long journey of 1,000 miles, I think, start, start with one step. So, if I may, uh, proven the Chinese, I would say that if a long journey starts with one step, make sure to make the first step in the right direction. Otherwise, you go off <coughs> for many, many miles. Thank you very much. I'm just going to let you field questions. Yes, yeah, well, yeah. Just have an open conversation. Any way you want to. Uh, feel free to ask uh, what you'd like, and I'll just go over Please. Go ahead. Um, uh, that, was, that, was, that was very encouraging. Thank you. Um, Dennis Ross was here. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he expressed a different worry about the um, Sharon plan for Man in Gaza. And, and I wanted to bring it up and see what he thought. Um, one of his worries, not that he was predicting this might happen, but one of his worries was that what this was about was locking the gates and throwing the keys on the other side, in effect saying to the air powers, you deal with it, see if you like it. Mm -hmm. The encouraging sign there, perhaps, was that maybe they would step forward in lieu of mm -hmm. the missing Palestinian leadership yes. and provide some leadership. Mm -hmm. Any comment? Mm -hmm. No, I share his concern. <clears throat> I think I hinted when I say unilateral steps have never succeeded in the Middle East. And this unilateral, I should have said it more clearly. Thank you for pointing out. Uh, the idea of unilateral disengagement is, is, is bad, and it's also politically silly. Why not try to negotiate? I mean, we have the extremists on the Palestinian side who really, uh, you know, the 30% is very menacing. And we have the extremists on the Israeli side and they are also very menacing. So the only way is to work out some kind of agreement. Even, let's say, that it collapses. The idea that there's nobody to talk to is part of the Sharon way of influencing the Americans and nobody to talk to. It wouldn't have hurt, even if they're right. And the Palestinians now are in disarray. I mean, the government... Uh, the unilateral step could end up in a disaster in Gaza. And I, I share his concern, uh, very much so. So I think that uh, in this respect he's absolutely right. And uh, I, would, I would advise my government to, to talk to them, at least, you know, maybe something could be worked out with the Egyptian, maybe the Jordanian, and so on. Uh, I'm curious to know what he said about the Clinton part in Camp David, but that's, we can talk about it later. Yes. Okay. So, so I disagree. Yes, I haven't read the book. I must say, not yet. Uh, so I can tell you, I disagree in advance. <laughs> yes, please. 
So, um, unilateralism is bad, um, but you, don't, you haven't given me too much hope, it seems, for multilateralism, um, except maybe if we want to talk about it in terms of Israel versus the various Arab states. But when uh -huh. you think about um, the influence of the United States, the role of the United States, you mentioned that it hasn't been an initiator. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned this example of Camp David and the failure of the Clinton administration. What should the U.S. goal be? What, what do you, what do you uh, recommend in that uh, well, I think that the only uh, way to put it is to get the approach to Iraq in. I mean, I don't, I don't see a choice. Uh, the idea that Iraq would be the first uh, democratic state in the Middle East, uh, well, I asked some of my Arab experts who are all for democracy. I mean, you know, those are university people. And they say, you know, you see that? If, if hair would grow on my hand, that's, that's the Egyptian way of, the Egyptians are terrific, they have terrific sense of humor. If hair would grow on my hand, this Iraq becoming a democracy. That's the Egyptian, you know? uh, uh, they, are, they are very good. And, well, when we, I talk with the Palestinians and I say, well, how about Palestine being the first democracy in the Middle East? That, that's possible. That's possible. First, I mean, the Palestinians are the most educated, you know, the, the most advanced, and so on. And secondly, the Palestinians would say, we have had some, we've been influenced by you. I mean, they, I mean, we have lived together for a long time now, and they secretly admire Israeli democracy. At the beginning, so it's one big plot against them. You change government every other day, but they are all the same, you know, right, left. But they started to realize that this is serious business. They do admire this openness and craziness of Israeli democracy. So this has to be a Middle East policy, not an Iraqi policy and not a roadmap leading. It has to be a Middle East policy in which Iraq, maybe together with, with... And then you get the Arab countries in. I mean, you can't do anything without Egypt in the Middle East, ever. Nothing would happen in the Middle East without... And of course Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia. And yes, you get the Europeans in. And you do it with great patience, which... It's difficult for uh, some candidates, and you know it's going to be a long road, and you work it out, and you don't rush into elections that if they fail, I mean, if they succeed, I'll be very happy. I'm talking about the democratic election in Iran. That would be great. I mean, there are miracles. But consider the cost of failure. That's, that's terrible. And the whole involvement is so difficult, because unilateral withdrawal of the United States forces from Iraq now is equally disastrous. I mean, this is the kind of catch that we got into. I mean, no responsible leader or, or anybody in the Middle East would be for unilateral uh, 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 withdrawal of the United States forces. This could mean the collapse of Egypt, the regime, and so on. We don't want that. So you have to work slowly. I think the next president would realize that he has at least four years to work this coalition in which Iraq and, and, and the Middle East would be considered one part. I mean, after all, all those states, including Israel and in the future Palestine, all artificial states that were created as a result of the British uh, Empire and so on. And so we share some kind of uh, uh, history of uh, uh, being artificial. I mean, most states are artificial in many sense, unless they happen to be big in the whole continent. I'm talking about the boundaries and so on. That's the solution, which would take more than just uh, drawing a, um, a partial plan or just hoping that a miracle would happen in Iraq. 
Yes. Well, I can say briefly, wonderful utopia, totally impractical, impossible. In order to, for the Palestinians and the Israelis, the Jews in Israel, to give, to give up the national identity at this stage of the game, it's just, I don't want to use any other word. I mean, <clears throat> this has been put forward by some of my intellectual friends. It gained a great deal of support in Oxford. I was there, and uh, they mentioned no serious people among the Israelis, and well, I, I shouldn't say that. Uh, very few people in, among Israelis and the Palestinians think that we are ready. I'm not saying that this is not a good solution, as you said. Why not? I mean, geographically it makes sense, and you know, why not live together? And as I say, we're already economically in many respects too early. We don't know what is a Jew and who is a Jew and what's the definition. We are still in the stage of building our identity as Israelis. God knows and Allah knows that the Palestinians are in the same stage. I mean, they can't. You don't jump. History doesn't know this kind of, of, of uh, 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 jump into, into the next stage. But this is not a situation. We have to have our respective states. And then, if everything goes well, but within some time, we will have economic cooperation, which is mandatory. We'll have cultural... Uh, we have already many ties on many levels. And uh, as I said, I meet with Palestinians on... I met Palestinians on a bi-weekly uh, basis. No problem whatsoever. Then, first of all, we have, the, we have to have two states. I, I firmly believe that. that. Not that I, you know, I'm not for utopia. In fact, I wrote an article many, many years ago declaring Jerusalem as an international city. Give it to all of them. I've never had such attacks by my friends in Israel You're calling me a, a traitor. Uh, my idea was that Jerusalem would be an international city and could be the capital of any country who would like to pay $1,000 a year. Call it <laughs> cultural religious capital of the world, including Israel and Palestine. No governments. That was, you know, right to our articles, and this is 20 years ago. But, you know, it was, uh, how shall you say, premature. So, so is this idea. Yes, please. I'll, I'll turn you. Yes. Uh, you have pointed out in your talk that the only major steps forward involve face-to-face negotiations mm-hmm. between political leaders. The initiative that you've just described is a grassroots movement. Yes. How does this grassroots movement intersect with the problems of elite-level lack of dialogue and lack of response? Mm. I think the connection between mass movements and political parties and governing elites mm. is a critical question. I wonder what you're thinking of in terms of the next steps. Yes. Yes, <clears throat> that's a very difficult question. Uh, you're asking, uh, would half a million signatures on both sides make a difference? And the answer is uh, yes and no. Well, let me say no and yes. If nothing changes, and uh, we would not be able to put enough pressure on our respective leaders, uh, then it would be another grassroots initiative. I've been involved in many of them. Most of them failed, uh, unfortunately. Uh, And it could happen. 
I mean, I take into consideration. On the other hand, I see the reactions. In Israel, also, when I talk to people here, first of all, you have to break this notion that there is no other partner. So it's more than just a grassroots movement. It's breaking the terrible frame that we are in and we cannot escape. There's nobody to talk to and so on. So the idea is not just to have signature. It's to get Israelis to meet. I mean, we get some Palestinians. I mean, if I go to a difficult group, you know, people who are completely disillusioned and say, we wanted to give them everything that Palestinians, they don't want to. I bring a Palestinian colleague and he talks. You can see the change right there. Or if I talk to a Palestinian group. So it, there is more to it than just the grassroots. But we'll try to put pressure on the government. We're going to bring the signatures, put them in front of the government office. We get this president of the State of Israel. There was a discussion indirectly with Arafat, who supports and doesn't support it in the way he does most things and so on. So we do also, I mean, I may look naive, but I'm not that naive. We do some political work. That's the yes. <clears throat> yes. What about the argument that, like, um, basically a two-state solution, a controversial two-state solution is already passed and it's not even possible anymore because you already have, like, you know, permanent structures. First, you have, you know, a lot of Palestinians within Israel proper who you're going to have to displace them. And then you also have these settlements of, you know, settlers who are going to fight mm -hmm. to the death, possibly to leave on both sides. Mm -hmm. It's going to, you know, turn into a big mess. And then also, like, you know, the, the apartheid wall that's, going within the, you know, cutting within the West Bank and sort of, you know, appropriation of water and a lot of different issues that are basically saying that, you know, some argument says that a binational state is the only peaceful solution left, that, you know, two-state solution is not even possible anymore with all of, you know, with the point that we're at right now. Yes. And you can go on, and usually the South African example is used here, they have... Uh, no, this is a solution of desperation. This is a solution which is even worse than the situation we have now. Uh, and we have a very difficult situation. Uh, it is based on the assumption there is nothing to do, so let's throw everything into the barrel and see what happens and so on. In the meantime, we solve other problems. The definition of who is a Jew in Israel it would be the end of that. It would end some of the problems within the Palestinian and so on. But how are you going to move, like, you know, like, you know, the Palestinian population in Israel is producing, reproducing, like, pretty fast, and actually, like, the, the Jewish population within Israel mm -hmm. is not really growing yeah, well, as, at a nearly yeah, rapid rate. Yeah. And, I mean, pretty soon, like, maybe within, like, the next 30 to 50 years, maybe less, like, the Palestinian population would be more unless, you know, Palestinians mm -hmm. are just displaced, or, like, policies, mm -hmm. like, you know, if yeah. a Palestinian within Israel marries somebody within Palestine, mm -hmm. That, yeah. that person from within mm. the West Bank or Gaza can't go yeah. to Israel. Like, no, no, it's very difficult. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, the separation would be difficult, but it would be more beneficial than the attempt to pretend that there is no separation. Let me take the figures, first of all, about... They are published in Israeli newspapers very often, and the, the, the Arabs are going to be a majority. <clears throat> Simply depends how you look. I mean, statistics require uh, understanding... Uh, well, if you extrapolate and say what happened before is going to continue, of course, you know, slowly within 50 years, I'm talking now about Israeli Arabs, not the Palestinians, the West Bank, and so on. They are now 18%. Their birth rate, as you said, is higher than the Jews, and so on. It's going to take over. It's not going to be a Jewish state. That's the 
But if you look at the figures carefully, you see that, uh, in fact, even though they are still high, they are slowly going down. I mean, we know economic development and high birth rate do not go hand in hand. The Christians among the Arabs have the same uh, fertility rate as the Jews. The Muslims in the cities, they're going down and so on. So this is something that has been played up usually uh, by the right in Israel against giving rights to the Palestinian Arabs in Israel uh, proper and so on. So all those are viable problems. The inability to uh, uh, separate the economies, the fact that we all live together, the fact that it's such a small country, I don't know many of you know, but uh, Israel is very, very small, uh, and Palestine is going to be a small country and so on. You cannot solve the problem by making the assumption that human rights is above all. Unfortunately, self-identity, which used to be called national identity, is still very strong among the Jews and among the Palestinians. So, eventually, I hope this is going to happen. And then maybe we could have the Federation of the Middle East and we can have Jordan inside and maybe Syria, who knows? But at this moment, to impose on this problem, this frustra I call it a frustration, that since we do not, couldn't solve the problem by separation, we are not going to... We are living together. Look what happens. I mean, could it be more disastrous than it is now? It is already terrible. Separation is well, even though this is a misquote, sometimes, sometimes, a good fence, not the one that we are building, makes for good neighbors. And I hope so. I know that Frost meant exactly the opposite. I know enough. I know enough. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't know. I mean, I know this is like probably, you know, you can't compare another country to another country, but I know like in India, when they did the question and everything, I really felt like that was wrong. They should have not done Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh all should have been one country. Yes. And with that partition, so many people got killed. And having people getting kicked out of other countries, and I really don't think that the British or the United States should come in and try to mediate a problem because I don't know. I could imagine the Palestinian side that they're being ganged up on. And I don't think, do you think it's a good idea to have the United States come in and try to settle this type of. Um, you know, on Well, on the American involvement, I, I think I didn't answer your question. I'm, I'm not saying the Americans going to, should impose a uh, settlement. I think Americans should be much more active in helping the two sides to, to get them. That's just one correction. Uh, the analogy with India, as the analogy with South Africa, is, uh, is, is difficult. Uh, 
after all, we are talking about a situation in which, uh, despite all the rumors, uh, Palestinians and Israeli Jews never lived uh, side by side in peace for the last 150 years. That's not the case of the Muslims in, in India. And there is more to go around in India. Than, and, and, uh, and the religion uh, religion involved is different and so on. I can, I can go on and on. I mean, I know a little bit uh, Indian. I, uh, I, uh, so uh, here we have two national movements. I mean, I, I'm not saying that nationalism is good. I mean, I'm trying to be practical. You have two national movements, two collectives that try to establish their separate identity. For the Jews, this is the first country of their own. 89% of the Israelis, when you tell them this, they say that's the end of the Jewish state and we, as Jews, have the right for national identity, for national, uh, uh, for national state, uh, as any other. And I think it's right. I think it's right. So, for, for most Israelis, this is almost a recipe for the destruction of Israel. Not that it's necessarily so. That's what they understand. You say, one state, I mean, of course, the Arabs are going to take over naturally or by force, that's the end of it. And I argue, based on my close connection with the Palestinians, that they are not ready for it either. They have their own problems. You know, what is a national Palestinian identity? And they don't want to be part of the Arab world. They want to have their own Palestinian identity. So what can we say, you know, what can we do in life, in political life? We have to go through those stages. I mean, it's impossible. I hope that the stage between those separation and the future one-state uh, solution would not be very long because of the reason mentioned before and the reason you mentioned. But I think this is an illusion that many people cling to it because they are desperate. And desperation is not good advice. I'm sorry to say that. Yes. On what? Sorry. Yes. Could you raise your voice? I, I'm afraid I don't know enough about it. You'll have to tell me a little bit more. Oh, I'll have an opinion, but I have to know about what. Different corporations that, uh, you know, work with them as well, divesting from that. Uh, like but this is putting pressure on Israel. Yeah, like, yeah. do you consider it a yeah. strategy, strategy yeah. for... Well, you know, people do things because they think it's right. I'm not in a position to, to tell you or anybody what's wrong and what's right. But uh, as a way of influencing the respective governments in the uh, region, I don't see, uh, I mean, a great deal of pressure is put, let's take the other example, a great deal of pressure is put on the Palestinian Authority to be less corrupt, to, to build the institutions, and uh, they haven't done so. So uh, what can you do? I mean, you can't force it... Uh, uh, well, I was in government and during the Rabin, uh, and this was the time of Oslo and big hopes and so on. And many of my Palestinian say, friends said, you know, why don't you help to build the Israeli civil service? That was I was doing in the Israeli government, to have an independent, not politicized and so on. And I made some, I mean, I Im immediately realized that the last thing they want is for somebody from the outside to be interested. 
So if this happens, you get the Israelis saying, we don't want the United States to intervene at all. So I doubt whether it's going to happen. There was another question here. Yes. <clears throat> I know you don't want to give advice to the United States. I have a rule not to interfere in other countries' elections. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't manage to interfere in our own, so... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It seems to me that the, the uh, operating assumption in, in Washington at the elite level, the prevailing elite level, and actually in Israel too, is that superior firepower, superior force, can simply compel after that black acids on the other side. And that the imbalance of power is so gigantic now that there's no reason for the more powerful side to make concessions. It's really incumbent upon those that are uncomfortable and suffering to go ahead and make the concessions. And in a bargaining context, it's actually somewhat difficult in, in the American context to argue against that argument because it, it, their argument is just win. And if they're that unhappy, let them let them uh, make moves to to come into uh, agreement. Do we? Well, how, how do do you, we win? Well, I'm just. I mean, I, it's, it's a question, actually. That's a question. Yeah. How do you respond to that argument that mm. now is exactly the wrong time to offer any kind of concession, but rather, given the power imbalance that's actually escalating, mm. yeah. it's time to uh, to push even harder. Mm. Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult question, so let's, let's take the easy one first. Let's separate between timing and, and, and the whole notion of, of winning with power. If it's a question of, let's call it tactics, timing, as I said, you know, unilateral withdrawal from Iraq is, is wrong now. The timing is wrong. Uh, so maybe now when uh, uh, the extremists among the Palestinians uh, are still strong, maybe it's the wrong time for Israeli uh, IDF not to intervene. Timing is not, is not, uh, is not an argument in mind. The, the basic question is the first one. Well, I don't see many good convincing precedents that uh, with military might uh, solutions have been enforced. I mean, you can find a few. Uh, particularly when um, one side has limitations. And I, I would like to emphasize, I mean, Israel is not using its all might. I mean, Israel is, is, is strange as it may sound. It, it uses restraint because of public opinion in Israel, because of the international community. We use a lot of force, more than I would like to, but still there's a great deal of restraint. So... <clears throat> Well, in the first Intifada, when the Arabs used, when the Palestinians used limited force, using mainly non-violent, I think they got more. They got, they forced more or less Shamir, the prime minister, the most, the most stubborn prime minister we ever had, to go to Madrid. Uh, and there was a beginning. Oslo was a result of the first Intifada and of the Gulf War and so on, in which the Palestinians sided with Iraq. Nevertheless, they gained something. Uh, uh, so I think that uh, on their part using force is not very uh, fruitful I don't think that they can say they are winning the second intifada I think the Palestinians are as frustrated as we are and even though the chief of staff of the Israeli IDF said we are winning the war he has been saying it too many times you know once more than that we are winning the war 
I mean, you know, I always really feel about this thing that, you know, you know, maybe we are winning the war and losing our uh, identity as human beings. I mean, this is not easy in Israel nowadays. Uh, most people feel bad about it. So you think you can drag them to some kind of a, of a negotiation table? I mean, you see the result. The result has been suicide bombers. So, what do you do? I mean, you bomb it, you can't. I mean, so you build a fence. A fence is, is a tactical weapon. I mean, if there is a motivation on the other side, and there is a motivation, they'll go over the fence. They'll go underneath the fence. They'll have suicide bombers in Sinai, in Egypt, God forbid, in Columbus, Ohio. And that's, that's not the way, I, I don't see how this argument will be. I mean, I know this is very popular in, in some places. I think that the, the, if I tie to the, to the first part, the, uh, uh, the wisdom of it is to use the right timing to, to stop using force. Not when the other side is completely down. Because the other side is completely down for a while and then it will start all over again. And we see the Palestinians were down and they decided to start it all over again. Not all of them and so on. And then it gives some room for the extremists and so on. The timing is very important when there is some sense that both sides can say that they, they won. I mean, the best thing would be for the Palestinians to say they won the Intifada, for the Israelis to say that they won the war against the Intifada, and then sit at the negotiation table. I don't see any way that we are going to impose a settlement by using brutal force. I'm talking about this war. Right when Dennis was, Dennis Ross was here in the spring, one of the concerns he has is that unilateral withdrawal from Gaza will potentially strengthen the hands of Hamas and weaken Arafat, uh, if he's not weak enough already. And in fact, it will persuade a lot of Palestinians of the sort of Lebanese uh, Hezbollah precedent. That it was the endless resistance and the use of force on their side they compelled Israeli retreat. And I suspect that's some of why uh, Sharon is being so aggressive right now in Gaza. But I'm, I'm not sure that there is any way to avoid that perception on the Palestinian side. It was force and uh, violence that compelled Israel to retreat, and that it will only beget more of the same kind of strategy to evict them from the West Bank. So how do you, how do you can, uh, translate this unilateral initiative that, as you say, is sort of a, not the perfect measure, but a positive measure, into something that leads to a political legacy that actually builds peace rather than builds further uh, conflict. Mm. But one way of <coughs> solving is, is uh, avoid the either-or solutions. Uh, I, I said before, I agree uh, with what he said, that uh, unilateral evacuation is very dangerous for the reasons that he mentioned and you uh, mentioned now. Now, so what's the alternative? The alternative is to bomb Gaza out of existence? This is the alternative? So that they would feel? I mean, they've been, we have done it already. Uh, this is not the alternative. The alternative is not to do it unilaterally. And now when I say unilateral, I mean both things, to withdraw unilaterally or to bomb unilaterally. We have to start negotiating with them, and then it would be very difficult for the Hamas or the other extremists to say that, uh, you know, we won, because you have somebody that negotiate, and negotiation means a compromise. So both sides would be able to say, we won, or, you know, we gave up, and so on. 
the alternative for unilateral withdrawal is not using more force. It's using a combination, that's why I say timing is important, of force and negotiation. Yes? Well, on, on the tactical cooperation, of course, I mean, it's more or less the same, after all, I mean, we're talking about the same kind of people, and uh, as I said, those are different initiatives, and uh, uh, <clears throat> except from uh, normal organizational rivalry, which exists, uh, there are some experts on bureaucracy, they know that those are different organizations, but nothing out of the ordinary, let's <laughs> say that. I am the one trying, you know, work both sides and so on, and I'm... Um, I'm very close to Yossi and both of them, so right. nothing, yeah, there is cooperation, of course. Now, the, uh, the reaction, I said, the signature part is going relatively well, and the Geneva Accord Initiative, they sent for the first time the uh, text of the uh, agreement to every Israeli uh, household, and I thought, I think that was a wonderful idea. And uh, I'm glad to report I was in Switzerland, and there is a great deal of support for the Geneva, Geneva Accord in Switzerland. They're very, very enthusiastic about it, and so on. Uh, <clears throat> uh, on, on, the, uh, on the more, uh, I can talk only about the Israeli side. Uh, uh, I think that uh, there is still a great deal of reluctance. And uh, the main thing is to show that there are Palestinians on the other side. Uh, I mean, for, from my experience, when I say there is a partner and I give the figures and so on, people don't believe me. I don't know the figures regarding the, I'm talking opinion polls, <coughs> regarding the Geneva Accords, but uh, the Palestinian press has been arguing uh, the uh, Ayalon Nuseva for a year and a half now. And I, even though there are many against, but there are many for, and once you have an argument, and this is where, this is the political arena of the Palestinians. Very nationalistic, by the way, the, the, the press. This is in Palestine because they don't have many internets and so on. Palestinian press is where you find, you know, you know exactly. They've been arguing it for and against for, for a very uh, long time, which means it's alive as, as a discussion, and Palestinians read newspapers. I mean, this is, so in this sense, it's alive. The opinion polls regarding the Ayalon among the Palestinians, as I said, on the principle of two states, you get 60, 70 percent. When you ask a more specific question, are you for the six points of the Ayalon Seba, it's less than 50%. And if you ask, are you for giving away the right of return, then th that's the end of it. But on general, in, a notion is there. So, yes, there is reason for cautious optimism. If we work long enough, we say three years, I think we should, if we get the half a million signatures, I think we should continue. I mean... I think the process is important, the signatures are less so. 
Oh, I'm sorry. So if you've got enough energy... As I said, it's painful in the Middle East. Yeah. We have one more. <laughs> I'm sorry? Iran, I don't think it's in good faith that Iran doesn't even recognize the state of Israel. Iran? Iran does not recognize the state of Israel. And uh, this attitude is uh, antithetical to the existence of the state. They don't want Israel to be there. Uh, with that background, the Israelis should do anything they can to preserve their identity and use military force. A two-state solution will not be good because that's exactly leading to destruction of Israel. So I think you have to factor that emotionally, especially angst in the background of what's going on in the Middle East. Yes. But allow me a small correction. Iran is not an Arabic country. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's put Iran outside. But uh, allow me to be personal, because it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a very difficult question. It's on the mind of many people I know in Israel, in Palestine, and outside, and, and, uh, and among many people who care about the region. And uh, I, I find it personally, and as I said, I've been trying to make peace for 25 years, five years and I find that every time that people talk about they, and excuse me for being personal in this say, they usually turn a blind eye to the situation and they read into the others uh, something that is not always there. Not all the Arabs want to destroy the state of Israel. No. Not all the Palestinians want to destroy the state of Israel. Many Israelis would like to wake up one morning and see Palestine gone. I'm sorry, the Palestinians gone. Many Palestinians would like to wake up one morning and see the Israelis gone. Of course. We have extremists on our side, on the Israeli side. And, uh, you know, a prime minister was murdered in Israel for peace. And uh, Palestinians have murderous, terrible extremists. They are not the majority. The moment we give up the notion that because we, the extremists have an upper end for, for a while and we assign their attitudes toward the majority of the others and we use they, uh, we may stop uh, understanding the situation. Uh, I would go as far as saying that I am a Zionist. I call myself, I'm for the state of Israel to be a Jewish state. And I think the Jews have the right, like any other nation, to have a state of their own. But there could be a point in which if my country commits the kind of things that I cannot live with, I would go as far as saying that the whole enterprise was not worthwhile. There are limits. So I think the only way to look at it is to say, here I return, after all we are human beings, and human beings can come to an understanding, to accommodation to a compromise, not a love and peace. Too early now. But let's forget the image of the others as, as, as they assign us and we assign to them. We can, with great patience 
and with understanding that the other people on the other side are also basically having an interest in peace, I think we can work out together peace. And the people on both sides, they are, I think, the hope we have. Sure. I think you have to take a look at the, uh, the ratio of populations. Five million against I don't know how many million. It's not a particular... Uh, You're drawing a big circle over all of them, and I wouldn't. I have small circles. They are Palestinians, they are Jordanians, they are... Just add up. I don't. I don't want to add up because I don't think that's the right thing to do. No, I don't. I mean, the Palestinians have had a very difficult time from the brothers, the Arab brothers. I mean, they haven't, they haven't been very happy with what the Arabs did to them. So, I don't. And the Palestinians, in a way, as I said, I, maybe I should have spelled it out with your permission. Sure. Remember, if there's going to be a first democracy in the Middle East, it's probably going to be Palestine. So, the two democracies, Israel and Palestine, could influence them maybe, in the direction of democracy. So, let's work on that. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Professor Galnor. Uh, we will, I want to thank all of you for coming. It's obviously a very complicated and difficult subject, and it's not often we hear someone who knows how they feel about it with, with real confidence. So. It was nice of you to hear that uh, and the complexity with which you've tried to deal with it. Thank you. I'm trying to think our next event is next week with Dick Samuels on leadership. So if those of you who don't know about it could check our website and look at it. The rest of you, thank you very much for coming. and We'll see you next time.